Good evening and welcome to the beautiful historical Marionette Theater. Tonight we are going to be traveling cross country for the holidays to get home for that family feast. But something goes awry along the way. I'll say. Please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Well, hey there, hi there, and hello there. Welcome to Spud's Flats, and it is the beginning of the holiday season, folks. Way there, Toppy. Hi. Did you uh, finish getting those um, pumpkins the kiddos smashed all over the place, all cleaned up? Yeah, a little bit. Um but uh, I, I want to say this year's uh, one of my favorite um, things that I learned on the interwebs this year. And you, you can save this idea for next Halloween, folks. But uh, you carve your pumpkin and then you put your carved pumpkin in like a chicken pen. And they peck all around the insides of where you carved. And then, it, you know, you just put a candle in like usual and what you get is like a super spooky jack-o'-lantern uh the other uh side of this is uh, you spread peanut butter on the on the in uh, the sides of everything you carved out and then squirrels come and chomp on the edge and that also gives you a super spooky pumpkin anyways save that idea for next year folks there you go I mean, something like that is much more uh, kind to animals than throwing out your McDonald's leftovers. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. Oh, so but we're not uh, we're not talking about Thanksgiving. Uh, we're no. I mean, I'm sorry. We're not talking about <laughs> Halloween. We're talking about Thanksgiving. Yeah. So uh, you know, as we are one to enjoy the underdog, this is some. Um, the holiday that folks don't talk about as much because, you know, we're the only crazy folks who really celebrate. Now, our our neighbors to the north there, they have their own holiday about a month before. But uh, this is where us poor saps decide that it's a good idea to spend time with family because you got to be thankful for what you have. And yes, you know, indeed. depending on what you've been through, um, it might be an enjoyable experience. So, yeah. That's uh, true. Now, Toppy, uh, the holidays and certainly Thanksgiving are typically full of traditions. And, you know, uh, Grandma brings this or, you know, Aunt Hildy brings that. Is there a particular dish or something that you look forward to at Thanksgiving or that you usually make yourself? I know things are a little bit different this year, but let's pretend that you've got this uh beautiful manner and you're having the whole crew of pickle hollow over what would you be putting on the table oh all all the traditionals um uh, except nowhere in sight would be that green bean casserole no <laughs> no nowhere in sight uh but you'd absolutely have the squash the mashed potatoes the turkey and uh, you'd have a salad, and you'd have a relish tray, and uh, a rim, and stuff like that. And uh, and then 
many pies, many different kinds of pies at the end of the meal. And uh, I, I have many years of very fond memories of uh, just like oodles of family coming over because no one ever left Pickle Hollow. They were born there and they stayed there. So when we did family for Thanksgiving, boy, there were a lot of people that came over. And, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, very fond memories of all of that happening. And um, blessings to my mother who single-handedly just made it happen along with my grandmother. And uh, they just did it, and um, and they did it for years. So, uh, yeah, many fun. Today, you know, many many new things happening, and uh, the family's gotten older, and we've all drifted apart. So it's not the same. Um, and uh, so I've got my memories. I like to do something to create new memories a lot of times because i spent a decade living away from family and so every once in a while i will make something new to bring to the family gathering and um, it started a few years ago and i actually caught on to this recipe from a former podcaster teaching thomas and uh, he grew up in the great state of maine And he shared this recipe once that I adore. It is a pie that's made with pear. And, uh, you know, that that fruit that kind of looks like an oblong apple. But, you know, it's a pear. Uh, But in this pie, it's not only pear, but there's maple syrup, which that itself is heaven on earth here in the Northeast when it gets this time of year. And ginger crystallized ginger just ground up with some of the maple syrup and (laughs) it's a crumb topping it's a maple ginger pear pie so i made that a few years ago and i'm going to be making it for uh, my friends at the the brand barn at work because we're having our potluck on monday nice listen i'll tell you what i'd love (gasps) wait a minute (laughs) <laughs> Matt, Matt's throwing a, uh, showing a, a face that states maybe he wouldn't like that. But I got to tell you, Gigi, to me, that pie really sounded good. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't mind having that. Also, apparently, Matt does not care for the squash and, mel- and mar- no, the sweet potato and marshmallow uh, that so many families have, including mine. Uh in fact, I'd have to say of everything, uh, that may have been my mother's absolute favorite was the sweet potato <laughs> and marshmallow. I found that sweet potato tastes a little bit better when it's made with French into French fries and it's sprinkled with chili powder. I uh, see. See, I, 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 I'll take. I, I love the squash and I love the sweet potato, oh. and um, so I, I don't have any problem with either of those. Uh, well, we should. Uh, you know, I was talking about potlucks, and yeah. so, speaking of potluck, oh, wait, she's been cleared of those charges, right? What What are you talking about, DJ? <laughs> I don't know. Listen, listen, listen. Before we get going, I just want everyone to know that uh, at the Friday after Thanksgiving, 
in Spud's flat here at the Marionette Theater. We're having a Black Friday sale on all the concessions. Ooh. Everything has to go to make way for next year's inventory. And, well, this year's inventory has a lot of things from like three or four or five years ago. But anyways, it's dirt cheap. You're going to come in, get a lot of candy. You know, good and plenty. Choo, choo. Yeah. Anyways, we got lots of stuff like that. And it's, uh, you know, so, so old. But uh, listen, you can't go wrong at these prices. Remember, Black Friday at the Marionette Theater in Spuds Flats. Be here or be square. Hmm. Okay. Well, you heard it from our senior showgirl. Uh, you know, start forming the line now because it's kind of be like those doorbusters. Right. Right. Mm. And I don't want any violence at the door. No trampling of anyone. Or, anyways, I'll hurt you. Okay. <laughs> nope. I'm ready. I'm ready to introduce the show. All right. There. Get downstairs before your okay. ex-boyfriend sneaks in. I, I will. I will. There she goes. Neil is a Chicago ad executive on a business trip to New York. When the clock strikes five, he's in a mad dash. It's a countdown to wheels up. He's in a hurry to make it home for Thanksgiving. But every which way he turns, he keeps running into the same bumbling salesman who's also having trouble getting home. Or is he? Grab your boarding pass and your favorite lucky charm. You're gonna need it. It's time for Planes, Trains, and Automobiles with Steve Martin and John Candy. Take it away, fellas. What do you get when you take a dash of the silver screen? A pinch of golden oldies? And a smidgen of screaming. It's time for Matinee Minutia with your hosts, DJ and Toppy. I can almost smell the turkey in the oven, Toppy. Sure can. Well, DJ, uh, our movie tonight came out in 1987. Thank you. And uh, it would be nifty if you could tell us what was going on in the world in that year. Alrighty, let me just make sure that everything's set to go here, and it is. All right, so the U.S. in 1987, American Motors Corporation, the folks that brought us the car, the funny little cars like the Gremlin and the Hornet. By the way, they also brought us the Jeep brand that later bought by Chrysler. Uh, well, something happened to them in '87. Anyways, Jim Baker resigned from the PTL. Yay! And during a visit to Berlin, Ronnie Reagan challenged Old Baldy to tear down this wall. So, also in 87, televangelist Pat Robertson, dead, announces his candidacy for Republican presidential nomination. I almost said comedy. Ha ha ha! The first national coming out day is celebrated because, you know, the wall was coming down. And uh, a squirrel, speaking of our discussion in the chat room, (laughs) a squirrel closed down the stock exchange when it burrowed through a telephone line. Oopsie doodle. 
<laughs> well, we had some celebrity births way mm. back then in 1987, which, if you really think about it, is a long time ago. But let's not think about that. So, celebrity births. Keisha. Yeah, the female pop, pop, pop artist with five <laughs> albums. Uh, Miley Cyrus and Miranda Cosgrove. Uh, Blake Lively, uh, that's an actress from CW's Gossip Girl. Yeah, and, and she's the wife of Ryan Reynolds, don't you know? Hilary Duff, why, she's an actress and former teen Disney star, Lizzie McGuire. Singer, uh, she's released five studio albums. Most recently, a published author and fashion designer because one must branch out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we've also have celebrating a voice day in 97. Uh, uh, we've got uh, that there, uh, Zach Efron. He's another former Disney actor. God damn them. They're all over the place. <laughs> uh, high school musical, don't you know? Uh, is Well, I mean, now he's got that chiseled physique. Woo, 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 woo. And then there's Kevin Jonas, uh, old singer and the oldest member of the Jonas Brothers. We got your Aaron Carter, uh, singer. Uh, it's, 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 it's another boy, the Backstreet Boys. Uh, brother of Nick, uh, I guess he came out as bisexual in 2017, and and now he's, uh, I don't know what he is, uh, released five albums, yeah, oh, now you know, that's a bummer right there, passed away at the age of 34 after drowning in his bathtub, oh dear, anyway, well, sorry to go, oh, well, there's a photo that DJ pasted in the in the chat room. See, I didn't know what he looked like, but that right there is a, a fine uh, young man. Oh, he is dead, man. I'm sorry. DJ, this is a movie we're talking about. It came out in the theaters. Yeah. So tell us uh, what it was competing against. All right. So way back then in 87... Of course, uh, as we have a fondness for the soft spot in, well, my head maybe, but the middle of the box office. Um, the movie tonight, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, well, it wasn't the top performer, no surprise. It was actually number 29, but it brought in $35 million, which is more than what my baby pictures would bring in. Bah. Uh, the top of the box office in 1987 included the number one slot, which had Eddie Murphy and Judge Reinhold bringing in $153 million. It was a sequel, folks. It was Beverly Hills Cop 2. Oh, my God. Yes. And in the number two spot is a film with Forrest Whitaker. You know, the guy that was um, Tom Hanks' best friend in uh, Forrest Gump. Yeah, and uh, also Charlie Sheen. Uh, well, you know, perhaps between bouts of rehab, and that brought in 136 million. I'm talking about Platoon, folks. Uh, wasn't that set in Vietnam? I believe. Oh yeah, it was. And I'm cheapers. There were a hell of a lot of other stars in that, if I recall. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then uh, the number three film that year was a film with Michael Douglas and Glenn Close. It was uh, 
Well, it was a breakup movie, and there was some dirty deeds done in that movie. And I'm not talking about between the sheets, folks. They got revenge. They killed the rabbit. Yeah. And that brought in 156 million that year. Oh God. Yeah, we're talking about Fatal Attraction. (laughs) So, um, you know, to put things into perspective. Around the middle of the box office there, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, as I said, it's number 29. Now, the film that did one better was a film with Kevin Costner and Gene Hackman. This is No Way Out. And uh, it was about a military officer who, uh, well, he had an illicit affair and tried to cover it up. I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. Kevin Costner was looking like a... Good man in the uniform. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, and then uh, the film that was just one below Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was a, a film with the future, sadly, governor of <laughs> California and uh, the uh, the head honcho of the president's physical fitness test. Oh, that's right, yeah. Mr. Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Running Man. And they already freaking remade it. Can you believe that? Did you? Well, I mean, you know, after his nasty breakup with that affair he had with the maid, they they had to have him running again. I guess. Uh, but it I think the $38.4 oh. was the running man. Yeah, okay, there you go. Not bad. I think the cleverest thing about the running man was uh, the guy that did uh, that game show was in it. Uh, he hosted a game show. What's his face? He was in Hogan's Heroes. Anyways, I thought it was clever. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, DJ, do we got a... Oh, trail- a trailer? trailer? Yeah, we why don't we do. play the friggin' trailer? All right. So, if you were the movie-going sort back in 87, if you were going to spend your money to see something on the silver screen... You might have seen this in coming attractions. It's the trailer for tonight's film. During holiday travel, some people get delirious. Some get delayed. And some get Del Griffin. American Light and Fixture, Director of Sales, Shower Curtain Ring Division. Neil Page got all three. I was on my way home to spend a nice holiday with my family. Instead, I'm in a motel bed with a stranger. So instead of Thanksgiving with his family, he's spending three days with the turkey. Two happy clams just whistling down the road. Flintstones, meet the Flintstones, they're the modern family. Paramount Pictures presents... Steve Martin. Ever been to Hawaii? Yeah. You see God Ho while you were there? See the second show, that's the best one. Is that right? Yeah. John Candy. Why are you holding my hand? Where's your other hand? Between two pillows. Those aren't pillows. In a new film by John Hughes. Planes, trains, and automobiles. See that Bears game last week? Yeah, hell of a game, hell of a game. Two pillows, eh? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, do we have time to talk about the director? Yeah, we got time. Mm-hmm. Let me introduce the director to you. It's 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 AJ Richard. <laughs> Matt in the chat room. 
it's not Peter Dustin. It's that's it. Richard Dawson. He's the guy that kissed everyone and spread SARS around the world on this game show. Anyways, <laughs> uh, the director of tonight's movie, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, was none other than John Hughes. He was uh, born in 1950. He passed away in 2009. He was an American filmmaker. He was born in Lansing, Michigan. And Hughes himself described uh himself as a kind of a quiet little kid he attended grove middle school later on going to glenbrook north high school and that's where he got an inspiration for the films that uh, uh, that high school experience gave him the inspiration for the films that eventually made his reputation at, in high school, he met Nancy Ludwig, a cheerleader, and his future wife. And uh, at the time, as a teenager, Hughes wasn't exactly having the greatest uh, up, upbringing ever with maybe not the greatest parents of all time. And so what did he turn to to escape? Well, he went to the movies. So he went to the University of Arizona and he dropped out. And uh, that's when Hughes began selling jokes. I love the progression of this guy's career. Hughes began selling jokes to well-established performers like Rodney Dangerfield and Joan Rivers. And, And he'd sold them. He made some money doing that. And they bought his jokes. And then Hughes used his history of selling jokes to get an entry-level job at Needham, Harper, and Steers as an advertising copywriter in Chicago. Folks, this is 1970. And uh, after that, in 1974, he moved over to Leo Burnett Worldwide to do some more copywriting. Now, folks, I remember this ad campaign, but John Hughes apparently was responsible for creating uh, what became the famous Edge credit card shaving test ad campaign, Edge being the, the shaving cream Edge. And I remember it. I don't know the gist of it, but they scraped a credit card along the skin or I don't know what that proved but but anyways John Hughes came up with it and it took off also he had a Virginia Slims account uh that worked out very well and because of that uh that was for Philip Morris he would often travel to New York City well guess what he did there in his off time Well, John Hughes visited the offices of National Lampoon Magazine because he's a funny guy. And he thought, well, uh, you know, jokes. I've I've sold jokes. And he soon became a regular contributor to National Lampoon Magazines. Uh, As a matter of fact, one of Hughes' first stories, inspired by his family trips as a child, was called Vacation 58, later to become the basis for the film National Lampoon's Vacation. 
Moving along, his first credited screenplay, National Lampoon's Class Reunion. Now, that movie was a flop, but whatever. His next screenplay was National Lampoon's Vacation, and that became a major hit in 1983. This, along with the success of another Hughes script that very same year, Mr. Mom earned him a three-deal picture, a three-film picture deal with Universal Pictures. Hughes' directorial debut was 16 Candles in 1984, and that movie won him a lot of praise. And it was in no smart, no small part due to its more honest depiction of navigating adolescence and the social dynamics of high school life. And uh, it, it was a stark contrast to the goofier, bawdier, dopier, porkies inspired comedies that were being made at the time. It was uh, the first in a string of efforts about teenage life that Hughes would do set in or around high school. And these movies included The Breakfast Club in 85, Weird Science also in 85, Ferris Bueller's Day Off in 86, all of which he wrote and directed, and Pretty in Pink also in 86, and Some Kind of Wonderful. In 87, which he wrote and produced. So by 1987, we see Hughes branching out by writing, directing, and producing hit comedies. One of them being Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, our movie tonight. He later did Uncle Buck and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, both proving extremely popular. His final film as a director was 1991's Curly Sue. I remember that. Uh, By that time in 91, his John Hughes Entertainment Production Company had signed various deals with 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers. He was on the move. Uh, Hughes' greatest commercial success came with what movie do you think? Well, he was the guy behind Home Alone. Check it out on YouTube. I'm recreating the scene. There you go. There you go. That was it. Uh, uh, Home Alone from 1990, a film he wrote and produced. Uh, That was about a child accidentally left behind when his family goes away for Christmas. Uh, But get this. He's completed the first draft of Home Alone in just nine days. It was the top-grossing film of 1990 and remains the most successful live-action family comedy of all time. Uh, Hughes followed it up with the sequels Home Alone 2, Lost in New York in 92, and Home Alone 3 in 97. And as we, we said, he sadly passed away in 2009. That gentleman and ladies is John Hughes. Now, the question you have to ask, was the young boy left home alone by accident or 
Was it an accident? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and I want to say that Curly Sue movie that he did, mm-hmm. I think the young actress who played the, the child, the daughter in that, I think, if I'm wrong, correct me in the chat room, Matt, I think she scored a uh, an ad uh, campaign with Pepsi as their new sort of spokesperson for a while. Japers, if that's true, I have no memory. No memory. Because, <laughs> you know, you fell asleep watching MTV in those days, right? <laughs> <laughs> I want to say Curly Sue, Curly Sue had uh, Macaulay Conkin in it, but I, 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 I can't remember. I can't well, remember. Well, the, the lead actor in that role was Jim Belushi, John's brother. Okay. All right. So we are at about the halfway mark in the show. So in honor of uh, one of our leading men, we're going to be performing the Candy Man because John Candy, don't you know? Ah, so like Candy Man, hey baby. So for your listening enjoyment, we have an interview that's done by a local St. Louis station, and this was uh, conducted during. A hockey match that John Hughes and John Candy just happened to be in town to watch because they were filming some of the scenes for planes, trains, and automobiles. So you'll hear John Hughes talk about his favorite team and John Candy's uh, affinity for hockey. Here we go. All right. Okay, we're back at the arena, the Bud Sports break after two spirited uh, periods of hockey. The St. Louis Blues over the North Stars 3-1. to one. And joining us in a special edition of the Bud Sports break in town, some uh, show business stuff. We have actor, comedian, Canadian, and big hockey fan, John Candy, and also the movie director, John Hughes. Uh, both of these gentlemen are in town directing a film. Uh, tell us something about the film you're shooting in St. Louis. Uh, it's called Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. It stars John and uh, Steve Martin, who play... Uh, Two salesmen who get stuck on the road uh, over the Thanksgiving holiday, whose mission it is to get to Chicago, New York to Chicago, New York to Chicago, via Wichita, St. Louis, and uh, on into Chicago. That we have to look forward to. John, I have to ask you, uh, being a big hockey fan, you have yet to make your first hockey film. I know you were just barely beaten up by Rob Lowe for the lead in Youngblood, and that that hurt you. I was a little upset about that, too. You know, I went right down to the finals uh, between me and he, and... uh, I had a big pimple on my face the day of the final audition, and that kind of killed it for me. Uh, they thought it was permanent, and uh, I was trying to tell them you could cover it with makeup, but I guess, uh, I don't know, I'd been in training for that one for about six months, too, and, uh, oh, well, you know, that's uh, on to the next one, I say. Uh, but you, you do have a hockey, hockey film. But look what happened to that picture, so, I mean, you know. I, I think you could have saved it. I think so. I'd like to think so. But, uh, you know, the rest is history, and we're on on to the next picture now. Uh, any chance of a hockey film in the offing for you any time in the future? Though? Well, we did one on SCTV uh, called Power Play, where I played uh, Billy Stamhavelitschke uh, for the Toronto Bay Leafs. <laughs> and uh, we, we had fun with that one, Rick Moranis and myself. Uh, we did we wrote that. So we grew up on hockey up in Toronto, so that was always our, our dream. And the great thing about it, we got free skates. <laughs> we went to CCM and got free skates. We made the producers pay for it. I know uh, you're a big hockey fan, John, and also Mr. Hughes, that uh, you uh, have been here a couple of times this week. Now, do you have any uh, particular affiliation in this game? Uh, who are you rooting for? Well, tonight, absolutely St. Louis. Uh, Toronto's uh, 
Well, John is with Detroit. He's a Detroit fan, so I guess you're booing him tonight here in, in St. Sorry. Louis. But, uh, apologize. But, but if you notice, you Fer know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the film John wrote and directed, uh, there was a Detroit uh, sweater in there uh, with Gordy Howe's number. Well, that's dangerous around here. Detroit's not real popular. You stole the coach, Jacques Demers. I mean, it's, it's rough. It's a sore spot here in St. Louis. Well, I, I there'll be a St. Louis sweater this, is my, this second, movie, it's my second Blues game this week, and I've been to any Detroit games in 30 years. So. <laughs> I, I guess I can say I'm a Blues fan. Now, so. Have you enjoyed your stay in St. Louis, John? I have. It's been great. Everybody's been real nice to us here. We've been, of course, looking for snow. The movie deals with a snowstorm, and and the tulips and daffodils here are gorgeous. They're in bloom, and all the buds are on the trees. So I need some more for the budget to manufacture some snow if you can. We're here to empty the Zamboni at the end of the game, and anybody who's got any extra snow at home, please send it to us at the production office at the Hilton Hotel. That's the Hilton Hotel by the airport. Any old snow, we could use it. So please, you know, if you've got any, send it out. Any, any, throw in the trunk. Okay, quickly, I'll go to each of you a prediction uh, first for your movie and then for the rest of the game. Uh, well, the Blues are going to win it, and the uh, picture's going to be number one at Christmas, right? Yeah. Well, i, I got to go along with that. I'm hoping that uh, St. Louis, I know St. Louis will win tonight. Uh, Minnesota, two shots on goal? Yeah. Three shots, actually, one went in. Heck of a game. Uh, heck of a game, yeah. <laughs> but I'm hoping uh, I'm hoping St. Louis wins tonight, and I, and I'm, I know the movie's going to do well. It's, it's just got uh, Steve Martin's great, and uh, working with John is wonderful. So and the name of the movie again? Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Okay, well, we'll, we'll be looking forward for Christmas. Thank you. Right. Thank you so much. Thanksgiving, even better. Well, thank you so much uh, for being our guest thank on Bud Sports Break. Thank you, St. Louis, for taking care of us here. Okay, John Hughes and John Candy, thanks so much for being with us. We'll be back with more right after this. Oh, right. So that was pretty much just an interview with John Candy because uh, John Hughes, he really couldn't get into word edgewise there. <laughs> I guess not. Uh, well, uh, DJ, tell us about Steve Martin. He was the big star of tonight's shoe. Yes, sir. So as we all know, of course, there takes a boatload of talent to make a production like a movie. And of course, planes, trains, and automobiles, it was on the silver screen in 87. And our leading man in tonight's film is Mr. Steve Martin. The jerk, uh, the man with two brains, so many of those iconic 80s comedy films. And in this film, he played Neil Page. Now, Steve Martin was born in Waco, which is a, a town south of Fort Worth in Texas. He was raised in Inglewood and Garden Grove in California. Now, in 1960, he got a job at the magic shop of Disney's Fantasyland. What a nerd. Yes. And while there, he learned magic juggling and creating balloon animals. I bet maybe he ran into Intibir at some point. Uh, at Santa Ana College, he took classes in drama and English poetry. He also took part in comedies and other productions at the Birdcage Theater. Not the one that was a play and, you know, later a movie. And he joined a comedy troupe at Knott's Berry Farm. That's a uh, well, it's a popular attraction out there in the West, and uh, it's actually an amusement park, along with a brand that actually uh, produces berry goods and treats. Yeah, and that's a jelly. That's mm -hmm. well, very jelly. Yes, and Steve Martin attended California State University as a philosophy major, but <laughs> in 67, he transferred to UCLA as a theater major, so... You know, maybe to someone told him 
something's coming down the pike. Uh, get out. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, get there into acting. So planes, trains, and automobiles. It wasn't Steve Martin's first time at the rodeo. Uh, get it? Texas joke. And uh, no, it was actually his sixth film. His film just before this was Three Amigos with Chevy Chase and his first, I believe, collaboration with Martin Short. His film after this was a film in 91, so a few years later, and it had Sarah Jessica Parker in Mary Lou Henner. That was L.A. Story. Pause for a sip of iced coffee. No. His writing career began on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour in 67. My sister had a copy of that on vinyl, Toppy. Did you ever listen to the Smothers Brothers? Well, uh, uh, I, I had to go to bed too early at that time <laughs> to ever see them. Um, but I did see them when they came back in the late, early 80s, I think. I, I uh, just remember the comedy routine because there was a uh, a joke about the playground and how poor their school was and that they didn't have swings. They just sat in the rope or sat in the dirt and pulled on the ropes. anyways this won steve martin an emmy award uh, for his work on the smothers brothers comedy hour and between 67 and 73 so you know six years there he also wrote for many other shows including the glenn campbell good time hour now that i was watching Mm. And then, of course, in 71, he worked on the Sonny and Cher comedy hour. And I was watching that. He also appeared on talk shows and comedy shows in the late 60s and early 70s. And in 72, he first appeared on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, of course. And uh, in six, oh, that was in 62, he first appeared on The Carson Show. Uh, that sounds too early, DJ. I'd go with your original date of 72. Probably. 62 would have been way, no, 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 that can't possibly be true. It was 72. I got 62 in there somewhere. We'll figure it out later. Doing stand-up several times each year and even guest hosting a few years later. Now, those early times, folks, <laughs> you would have seen him in his familiar white suit, but and he would always have his banjo. That was a big part of his act. And that arrow through the head was a comedy gag that was in his arsenal at the time. So uh, he there he was. And by the way, today he is a very respected uh, banjo player. I mean, he is maybe one of the best around. At any rate, yeah, way back then, his act was playing the banjo and having an arrow through his head. So in 76, he served for the first time as guest host on Saturday Night Live. And by 2016, he had guest hosted 15 times. Yeah, Saturday Night Live did a lot. To advance his career. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's right up there with Alec Baldwin uh, for his, his amount of time since uh, he hosted Saturday Night Live. And uh, he also appeared 12 other times on Saturday Night Live uh, outside of the hosting. Yeah. So during the 90s, Martin continued to play more dramatic roles. In 91, he was in Grand Canyon 
playing a traumatized movie producer. And in 92, he was in Leap of Faith, playing a fake faith healer, so sort of a televangelist. Now, here is a favorite. 1994's A Simple Twist of Fate, which I believe was a modern adaptation of the story of Silas Marner. And he, I think he was a widow who adopted an orphan child. Uh, that was a really good film for him. Playing a betray... Oh, well, yeah, it explains it plays a man that was betrayed and adopted a baby. Okay. So in 97, he starred in uh, David Mamet's... Mamet. Mamet. Thriller, The Spanish Prisoner. And, oh, I have some distraction in the chat room here. You'll have to let me know who that is, Matt. Yeah. Uh, let's yeah, see. I don't... I'm not sure who it is, but... Uh... Like playing locks. Mm. So, um, and other more comedic roles include. Oh, here's another favorite toppy. In '92, can you imagine this? Steve Martin. Now, you would have thought, being a, a staple actor of the iconic '80s comedy films, that these two would have been collaborating more often. But no, it wasn't until '92. That Steve Martin was in a movie with Goldie Hawn called House Sitter. And this film is right up there on the top of my list because, oh hmm. my goodness, this story is so fun. Okay, the short version of it is that Goldie Hawn's characters passing through town, maybe getting over a bad breakup. And she's a con artist. She finds this beautiful house that's being built and she decides to become a squatter because it looks to be abandoned well she eventually chances upon steve martin's character who is a bachelor about to be wed and things fall apart in that relationship and it's just hysterical because everyone in town assumes that goldie hawn is steve martin's betrothed and she comes up with all of these backstories about how they met and how they know each other. And anyways, it's it's totally worth watching House Sitter from 92. Let's catch up. Uh, in The Out of Towners in 99, he was with Goldie Hawn again. And then in 94, he did another film. It's one of my favorites. It's actually a holiday themed film because he works for a counseling hotline. And it's Nora Ephron, so it was based on a book, Mixed Nuts. And I do believe that this may have been one of Madeline Kahn's last film roles. In 99, Steve Martin was in Bowfinger with Eddie Murphy. It was written by himself and co-starred Eddie Murphy. After Bowfinger, he starred in Bringing Down the House, which had Queen Latifah. And in 03, he did a remake of the classic film Cheaper by the Dozen, which I do believe the original had Lucille Ball. And uh, both earned more than $130 million. He wrote and starred in a film in 2005 called Shop Girl and appeared in the sequel of Cheaper by the Dozen. And then afterwards, he appeared in the 2006 The Pink Panther which, of course, was a, uh, a modern remake of the 80s films, and Pink Panther 2 in 2009, which he co-wrote as Inspector Clouseau. Now, in 2007, Steve Martin remarried. He had a, 
messy breakup, actually, and we'll talk about that in a little bit here. And he has a daughter from this uh, marriage. More recently, Martin continues to act and appears in Only Murders in the Building, which is a Hulu series started in 2021. So it's on its second season. And he's in that with Steve Martin and former Justin Bieber heartthrob Selena Gomez. And to date, Steve Martin has 69 acting credits and recently celebrated his 78th birthday this past August. Excellent. Let's talk about John Candy. In Plain Strains, he played Del Griffith. Born in 1950, passed away in 94. Candy was a Canadian actor and comedian, best known for his work in Hollywood films. Candy grew up in Newmarket, Ontario. He attended Neil McNeil. Neil McNeil. Boy, that sounds like a character in the smell cast. Hi, I'm Neil McNeil. He attended Neil McNeil Catholic High School, where he was the treasurer of the student council. And, get this, kids, played offensive tackle on the school's football team and meanwhile participated in their drama club. So, yeah, long before he ever thought about acting, Candy was thinking of becoming a professional football player. Can you believe that? But, as sometimes happens in that sport, which is a highly kinetic, confrontational sport where people bang into each other, he got a knee injury. And that injury prevented him for, from fulfilling his dream of becoming a pro football player. Later, he enrolled in Centennial College to study journalism. Then he went on to McMaster University. And that's where he started acting while at college. Way back in 1971, John Candy was cast in a small little part as a Shriner in Creeps, a new Canadian play by David E. Freeman. And it was about cerebral palsy. That was in Toronto in 1973. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, that was in Toronto in 71. In 73, Candy guest starred on a Canadian children's television series called Cucumber, and he made a small uncredited appearance in The Class of 44. In 1974, Candy had a small part in the ABC Afternoon Playbreak. He was in something called The Last Bride of Salem. And also that year, in 74, he had a regular role on the TV series Dr. Zonk and the Zonkins, which I I don't know if that was Canadian or American. It must have been Canadian. Dr. Zonk and the Zonkins from 74 to 75. But more importantly than any of that is that starting, uh, we're going to backtrack just a bit to 72, so while he was getting those little roles on TV and such, back in 72, Candy became a member 
of Toronto's branch of the Second City. Uh, and that's a, a show that eventually gained wide North American popularity, especially when NBC picked up picked it up in 1981, and Americans started seeing it. And Candy quickly became a fan favorite. So that's really uh, Second City is really his his kind of big break, his big departure. It's where he became first known. Uh, among Candy's SCTV characters was uh, the unscrupulous street beat TV personality Johnny LaRue, 3D horror auteur, Dr. Tongue, sycophantic and easily amused talk show sidekick William B. Williams. That's all from uh, his Second City career. Uh, uh, during Second City series run, he uh, did other things uh, simultaneously, including appearing in the film The Clown Murders in 76. He had a lead in a low-budget comedy, Find the Lady, also in 76. And also in 76, Candy played a, a supporting role with Rick Moranis on Peter Gazowski's short-lived Late night television talk show called 90 Minutes Live. And boy, it must have been short lived because <laughs> I sure as hell don't remember that. At any rate, moving on in 78, Candy had a small role as a bank employee with Christopher Plummer and Elliot Gould in the Canadian thriller The Silent Partner in 79. That's when Candy began a more active film career, appearing in a minor role in Lost and Found and playing a U.S. Army soldier in Steven Spielberg's big-budget comedy, 1941. He had a supporting role as easygoing parole officer Burton Mercer in The Blues Brothers, 1980. Do you see somebody's career rising? Yeah, I do. In 1980, Candy hosted a short-lived NBC television program, Roadshow. Uh, the Washington Post said, uh, The Roadshow uh, is an improvisational journalism, is what they called it. And appearing as himself, Candy and a video crew traveled in a tour bus and interviewed college students amid party atmospheres this seems like an early kind of reality television show to be honest um let's move on to stripes in 81 with um uh and that that's where candy played the lovable mild manner army recruit dewey oxberger and stripes ended up being one of the most successful films of that year uh, Candy went on to make an appearance, a cameo appearance in Harold Ramis's National Lampoon's Vacation, and this was his, where he first had a collaboration with John Hughes, who, as you remember, was one of the writers of National Lampoon's Vacation. So that's when Candy and Hughes first connected in '83. Um, also, Candy appeared on Saturday Night Live twice, 
uh, hosting in 1983. Now, <clears throat> in terms of uh, movies, Candy's big breakout role was the hit romantic comedy Splash. Remember mm. that? With Tom uh, Hanks. Yes. Candy's first lead role in Hollywood film came with 1985's movie called Summer Rental. That was directed by Carl Reiner. Candy's next starring role in a Hollywood film was a big box office disappointment. It was called Armed and Dangerous with Meg Ryan in 86. But then the following year in 1987, here we are. Candy had his hit film, Planes, Trains and Automobiles. Uh, And... uh, went on to star in another film written by Hughes. It was called The Great Outdoors in 1988, which co-starred Dan Aykroyd. Candy had another hit film with also with Hughes as the writer and director. It was called Uncle Buck in 1989. And after that, there were a string of forgettable flops. But then, this is a cute little movie. I went to see it. It was great. Candy returned to fame in 1993 with a comedic hit called Cool Runnings, a story of the first Jamaican national bobsled team attempting to make it to the 1988 Winter Olympics. It was a sleeper. It was a little sleeper hit movie uh, that nobody saw coming. Uh, in 94, Candy made his directorial debut in a comedy television film called Hostage for a Day. Sadly, at the age of 43, Candy died in his sleep uh, in 1994 in Durango City, Mexico, while filming a movie called Wagons East. And that, my friends, is John Candy, 1950 to 1994. Mm. Now, Toppy, uh, one of my all-time favorite John Candy films was the 90s movie Uncle Buck. And that introduced people to a very young Macaulay Culkin before Home Alone. That's right. Oh, my goodness. Now, uh, I met a, a, a time in my life where it seems like the people I work with are getting younger and younger. And I, I have a supervisor who is not even three decades old yet. (laughs) But anyways, I was talking about pop culture and came upon something with Macaulay Culkin and that sparked a memory. And I said to this young 20 something, I said, The first movie I remember Macaulay Culkin in was Uncle Buck with John Candy. And she was like, who? But thank goodness some of the streaming services out there have the wherewithal to uh, include some pop culture. Because I was able to tell this young lady that she could watch Uncle Buck on Netflix. So hallelujah. Uh, Praise hydrogen. There is a higher power. Maybe. Uh, So, uh, the leading lady in tonight's film, if you want to call her that, she's uh, the wife of the traveling salesman played by Steve Martin, Layla Robbins. Her character was Susan Page or Mrs. Page, of course. Although, uh, I'll just, I just, just for 
sake of confusion, uh-huh. uh, uh, Candy played the salesman, and Steve Martin played the basically a, an ad salesman, a, a, a graphic designer kind of uh, deal. Anyways, they they would both probably try to sell an Eskimo ketchup popsicle. There you uh, go. <laughs> so Layla Robbins played Susan Page, Mrs. Page. She was born in the heartland, don't you know, in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was the daughter of Latvian-American parents, you know, one of those former Baltic states that got their freedom from the Soviet Union. She received her undergrad degree at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, sounds French, and attended the Yale School of Drama, earning a Master of Fine Arts, Fine Arts, Robbins has been, now it's not with two B's, it's not like Tim Robbins, not related, it's Robin like the bird. Robbins has been in a relationship with the actor Robert Cuccioli since 2000. They co-starred in Macbeth at the Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey as Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, among other plays. So, you know, she's a, she's a theater actress, she's very bohemian, she's not married, but they live together. The Robin Robbins made her big screen debut starring opposite Steve Martin in tonight's film, Plain Strains and Automobiles. She then starred opposite Tom Selleck hubba hubba, in the 89 crime thriller, thriller, An Innocent Man. She was also in 1990s film that I do believe introduced us to Winona Ryder, Roxy Carmichael. And then in 95, she was in a comedy of live nude girls. Oh. And uh, this also had Dana Delaney and Kim Cattrall. And then in 99, she was in a film called True Crime. Now, on the small screen, Robbins co-starred with James Earl Jones. You know, the voice of Darth Vader. And in the ABC crime drama series, Gabriel's Fire. From 90 to 91. She also guest starred on Law and Order. Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Law and Order Criminal Intent. And then Third Watch. You know, she was in all the franchises there for a while. Uh, she also got on to be sec- on Sex and the City. She was on 30 Rock and The Good Wife. She also played a younger version of Livia Soprano. The mother of mobster Tony Soprano. In the two episodes of the HBO crime drama series, The Sopranos. In 2014, Robin starred as Martha Boyd, the U.S. ambassador to Pakistan, in the fourth season of Showtime's series Homeland. And the following year, she was a regular cast member in the TNT drama series Murder in the First. In 2016, she had a recurring role in Quantico, Sounds like a, a military, uh, sort of a police thing. In 2018, she starred in the short-lived ABC drama Deception. And she had a recurring role as Katarina Rostova. Say that six, three times fast. In season seven of the NBC series The Blacklist. She also had a recurring role in In Treatment, Bored to Death, Mr. Mercedes, Dr. Death and the Boys. All those things. And in 2022, Robbins joined the cast of the AMC drama series. And here, folks, is tonight's Star Trek connection. The Walking Dead 
which also uh, starred um, Star Trek Discovery's future leading lady, um, Sonequa Martin-Green. So uh, Layla Robbins was in The Walking Dead as governor of the Commonwealth. Pamela Milton. Okay, that was a stretch, but yeah. Okay, you're right. That is a Star Trek connection. <laughs> and to date, uh, Robbins has 91 acting credits. Uh, I, I, you know, had long since forgotten about her small role in Planes, Trains, and Automobile, but I did run into her again in The Walking Dead uh, as Pamela Milton. And uh, uh, that was quite something. Uh, let's to Matt in the chat room brought up Edie McClurg. Uh, let's talk, let's talk about her. She had this cute little role. Uh, it was really just one scene, but she kind of stole the stole the scene where she's um, trying to help them uh, get tickets and everything. Uh, right, DJ Wood. Oh yeah, the rental car. Yeah, yeah, and um, <laughs> that was pretty cute. One of the other, um, uh, let's say, cameo appearances by Michael McKeon, who gained fame on Laverne and Shirley, and most recently in Better Call Saul, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, Mike McKeon played, uh, showed up uh, towards the very end as, what was he, an officer? He was something. With, yeah, some what sort of like it? a state trooper or something. Yeah, yeah, and he turned up there. But let's let's talk about this weird cameo at the very beginning by Kevin Bacon. <laughs> uh, Steve Martin is trying to catch a cab. And suddenly he spies across the street. This is a very busy street where everyone's trying to catch a cab. He spies this other guy, played by Kevin Bacon. I don't even know if he was credited uh, for this. And both of them see a cab stop at the same time. And they both race to get the cab. And it's it's just a funny moment. Um with Kevin Bacon. DJ, I, I saw this movie when it came out, the year it came out, and I saw it on Thanksgiving Day. Mm-hmm. How about that? And I remember liking it, but my rewatch uh, this past week made me like it a whole lot more. Uh, I, I saw a whole lot more um, to love and I think predominantly is this may have been one of Steve Martin's more mature roles where unlike the jerk or many other of his earlier movies, he was just in one goofy, stupid scene after another with a gag. This may have been his first mature role where he played a character and the movie had was not just a strung together series of of stupid funny things mm-hmm. it had a story it had a heart and so i recognized that when i first saw it but i saw it even more when i i rewatched it 
and that's how much of a heart it had. It started when uh, when Martin and Candy were in that hotel room and they were just having a terrible time, that first hotel room, and Steve Martin gives uh, John Candy this big dressing down. Mm-hmm. He's just hammering him like, how stupid, what a dumb thing, and how could you? And as Steve Martin is just berating him, the camera closes in on John Candy, and we see his reaction. And slowly, eventually, Steve Martin understands, wow, I just really gave him a beating. And John Candy has a short short speech where he basically says, well, look, I... I kind of like myself, and my wife does too. And he kind of defends himself a little as like, well, whatever you think, you know, I think I'm a reasonably good human being. And that's the first moment where I felt like, wow, this is more than just a stupid string of funny scenes. Absolutely. You know, I think that one of the marks of a truly great film is its watchability and not in the sense that, you know, your your attention is devoted to it the first time you see it, but as it is that when you watch it again, you pick up things that you didn't notice the first time. And certainly the fact that I saw this for the first time as a young person, not even much into my teens, I didn't have the attention span or the maturity to understand some of the emotional elements of this story. And I think that the the chemistry between Steve Martin and John Candy was just brilliant because Steve Martin's playing the serious guy, even though Steve Martin's known for comedy. So somebody who's watching this film for the first time may not have seen Steve Martin in a serious role might be thinking, okay, you know, when's he going to make me crack up? And so from that point, you're really sort of following Steve Martin's character and relating with him and thinking, you know, when is he going to ditch this obnoxious guy who he seems to keep running into? And, This is where, as you were saying, seeing it another time, maybe even seeing it for the first time as an adult, you pick up on some of those subtle messages. In fact, I challenge anyone to watch this film and figure out when they realize that John Candy's character has a, a, a deeper element to his reason for being out on the road. And we'll get to that in a second here but you know um watching it as an adult it certainly weighs differently and i would say and this is going to sound cheesy but remember folks i grew up in a conservative household it was like the donna reed show so i'm gonna say it like this movies like this are a reminder of why a generation of people were raised to believe that when you're out in public you put on a happy face. Now, in this day and age where we understand that people have their own emotional baggage and everyone's got their own problems, we kind of brush that idea off to the side. 
But I think that that's in some degree one of the problems this world has today. You don't smile at strangers. You don't even try to make eye contact. People in stores don't talk to each other, even if they're behind the counter and they're supposed to be the one who's there to help you. They just grumble, look at their phone, maybe walk away from you. And that's one of the problems of the world today. So John Candy's character in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, I think, is a good example of that old message that you put on a happy face, if you can, because there's somebody out there in this world who's having a harder time at life than you. And it's the reason we have occasions like Thanksgiving to be thankful for what you do have, because sure, there's a lot that many of us probably don't have. And it really sucks. You can't have it, but what good is it going to do you to waste your time wanting that thing you can't have? Why not try to make a difference? And, you know, um, I think in the end of planes, trains and automobiles, Steve Martin's character did his best to make a difference. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. He 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 literally got off his train and went back to where John Candy was. Um, at, after wanting nothing but to go home, he gets off the train to go back. And I think that even though uh, it is a small role, um that uh Layla Robbins in the last scene where she plays the wife who welcomes back Steve Martin um and it's it's very teary there's you know a crescendo of music and and uh Steve Martin says I'd like you to meet my friend um and she says welcome and that's the end of the movie and uh it's it you know it fulfills everything you'd want in a movie to end with a true feel good uh feeling and it succeeds tremendously uh, besides being a very very funny movie all mm. the way through um so i just want to mention uh because um we uh we did talk about it uh edie mcclurg's role if you if you didn't know her one little short scene she improvised a lot of the beginning where she's uh steve martin is impatiently waiting for her to service him and she's on the phone speaking apparently with someone you know that she seems to personally know and uh, she's saying things like you know i can't cook and she's talking about all you hear is her part of the conversation and that was all improvised by mcclurg and encouraged by the director and mcclurg says uh, to this day random people come up to her and ask her to tell them that they're fucked yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there you go uh, let's wrap it up, DJ. Okay, so we are out here close to the lobby, and we're going to talk about things you might enjoy if Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is on your playlist. So 
we call this our snack tray. I'm going to recommend a film from more recent years. It's a comedy drama also. This is from 2010. And it stars uh, future uh, superhero star Robert Downey Jr. Along with Jamie Foxx, who got his career started on In Living Color. And Juliette Lewis, who was in uh, Christmas Vacation as the, uh, I think, the third Audrey. (laughs) this is a film called due date and it's a high strung father to be peter hyman not hyman high man is forced to hitch a ride with aspiring actor ethan tremblay on a road trip in order to make it to his child's birth on time 2010's due date all right very good. Nice choice. Uh, I thought of another John Hughes comedy, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That's what I'm recommending. If you like tonight's movie, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, you're probably going to like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, Matthew Brodick, uh, Broderick takes his best friend, Cameron Allen Rook, and his girlfriend, Sloan, Mia Sarah, with him on the most epic ditching school experience in the history of time. And uh, that experience is not unlike the road comedy that is planes, trains, and automobiles. So that's what I'm recommending. If you like tonight's movie, you're going to probably like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So check it out. And uh, that, of course, was filmed in uh, Chicago, just like tonight's movie planes trains and automobiles yeah uh he is very connected to chicago mm-hmm. all right toppy so <clears throat> this uh place has had uh, a lot of history and uh, we tell folks what's coming up next by putting one of those magical coins in our gumball machine could you grab that bag and dish one out all right here we go hey give me the magic coins he been put in the slot yes all right choppy go ahead and open that up for us a capsule wow here we go <laughs> ah, next time folks on that name minutia it's a mid to late 80s situation comedy by the creator of silver spoons with little Ricky Schroeder, starring former cast member of Taxi, rising star from One Life to Live, and her new TV mother, the former matriarch of Billy's Crystal's premiere. Uh, one a retired baseball player becomes the housekeeper of a New York ad executive. They end up raising all their crazy kids together. Uh, next time, it's Who's the Boss? And we are going to be joined by our returning guest, author, playwright, podcaster. Our own Matt Burlingame is going to join us next time. Woo! And uh, I hear that he has a thing for that... um... Oh, uh, what's her name? The the teen daughter that was in this, because she was also in a, another show that he liked. I don't know. I can't remember. Who oh, that Alyssa Milano. Alyssa Milano. I remembered because it kind of made me hungry, and it's like Pepperidge Farm, the Milano cookies. 
<laughs> all I know, all I know, DJ, is Matt's claiming he's never seen that show. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, um, as luck would have it, because we love the underdog, apparently only the first season was ever released on DVD. But oh. I hear I have it on good authority that if you dig, uh, well, if you scratch the surface of the interwebs, you could probably find a way to watch it. Okay. All right. So, Toppy, if you would uh, peek over the balcony and let us know who was in the chat room tonight. Well, we'd like to welcome uh, the kind folks who joined us live, because we do do this live every first and third Friday of the month. And uh, we have joining us in our chat room via, uh, what do you call this thing, Discord. Yeah, Discord. Uh, we've got Lamont Cranston, and we've got our uh, pal from who always joins us, Tommy Hashbrowns, and we have Matt Burlingame from Chubbs Gone Wild and the Big Gay Six Show. Uh, thank you all for joining us and just uh, making like. We've got an audience to talk to, so we we love you for it. Thanks for being here live. Thank you for listening to Matinee Minutia. Our show streams live on the first and third Friday of the month. Go to matineeminutia.com, click the YouTube icon for live video, enter Discord or chat. You can find our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Visit our webpage at matineeminutia.com. Tweet us on Twitter at matineeminutia. Find our group on Facebook. Have an idea for a show? Or why not let us know how we're doing? Email us at matineeminutia at gmail.com.